Welcome back to episode 012. This is the Alexander Schmidt podcast. Just to immediately address something that a few listeners have expressed to me. The best way to listen to all of these lectures together is to download the Anchor app. A-N-C-H-O-R. You can do it on Google Play or the iTunes Store for free. It's totally free and it will give you updates on my show on my lectures when they show up uh, immediately so that you don't have to go looking or check Facebook or something like that. And if you get into this story in this series of lectures, you may well want to do this because it will just make it easier for you to listen to a show that I'm sure you'll love. Okay, so last time we were talking, we got through book two of the Iliad, and then we did some analysis of it as well. We looked at the staff as a symbol, and um, something interesting about that that I, that I didn't mention is that of course, the one who wields the staff best is not the king in book two, but rather Odysseus, and that's particularly interesting, especially to the postmodern claim that competency is power, because in the Iliad, the Odyssey, and all the great books, we'll see that, in fact, that's not true, that often there is a divorce between competency and power, and that, in fact, competency is more valuable than power or strength, we'll see. In fact, our representative of political power and our representative of physical prowess fall prey to their own um, ignorances and foibles, you might say. Whereas competency, of course, as competency, well, what's competency's weakness? Exactly. It's that which enables you to adapt to any situation, which means that, functionally speaking, competency is true strength. And lacks weakness, which is why Odysseus always wins. So, book three, what are we going to see? Well, first and foremost, we're going to finally see the Achaeans and the Trojans clash, and we're going to see a we're going to see a dressing down of their ranks and how they look and how they interact as they take the field. We'll then immediately have two representative individuals, two representative individuals who surely are showing us what the first thought must have been when the Trojans and the Achaeans came to battle when they first started battling 10 years ago. And so even though the Trojan War is starting in the 10th year of the war, many of the events will mimic the first events of the war. So we'll hear about, say, for instance, Protesilaus, the first man who died getting hit by a spear. Um, he's actually referenced in the catalog of books of ships too if you want to check on that and he'll be mentioned too again when Hector breaks through the Achaean wall which will be built um, and sets fire to Aias the greater ships and so in this book we'll see our first battle which will mimic the first battle of the Trojans and the Achaeans we'll see the first single combat which will be between exactly whom you would expect Menelaus the bereaved and the aggrieved by uh, Paris of Troy, and of course his opponent will be Paris of Troy, and the battle will go much as you would expect between, <laughs> well, frankly, Paris will be described as something of a pretty boy, and we'll get into that description a little bit, and Menelaus is a grim and fierce fighter, and well, so you might imagine the comparison today would be between a professional mixed martial artist of the highest pedigree in the UFC against, I don't know, um, somebody in a Ronald McDonald costume. It's just not a fair fight. It's not very close at all. I might add that the random person in the Ronald McDonald costume would not train UFC because, or <laughs> in, an MM, in a mixed martial arts capacity with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, wrestling and such. 
Right. So, we'll also see Helen for the first time. We'll see the woman who launched a thousand ships and, well, just see a little bit of her character. But she may be different from what you might expect. She's, she's in no way air-headed or uh, lacking a mind. She's incredibly perceptive and something we'll notice here in book three is that she, unlike any other mortal, seems to have the ability to recognize gods by their specific features when they um, mimic the look of mortals. She's just so perceptive that she can see something which is imperceptible, is uh, essentially the idea. And um, she'll learn a little bit of bad news, which she won't at the moment know is bad news, but really is. Um, and the book will end with a sort of unholy and undeserved um, wedding of sorts, you might say. It's not an actual wedding, but it, uh, well, you might say that it is not an actual we wedding in the respect that Paris and Helen are not actually wedded, which is an interesting question my students often ask me about. They say, well, how can Paris marry Helen if she's already married to Menelaus? And, well, I think that's quite a fine question, regardless of the laws of a land. How can a woman be married to two men at once from different countries, from different lands, embodying two ideals. So one perhaps begins to see what Helen represents, perhaps a person who abandons one ideal for another and the conflict that ensues. So let's jump in. Two armies, the troops and divisions, under their commanders, the Trojans advancing across the plain. Here comes a very famous Homeric simile, and Homeric similes are similes of extended length, which often involve gruesome animal scenes. <laughs> so often boars, lions, cranes, snakes, eagles will make their way into Homer's similes. Often there will be combat within the similes, and something to look out for is that the savagery of nature is certainly represented in the savagery of human nature and during a battle especially a physical battle during an ancient war well man and animal are not so hard to distinguish and so homer reminds us of this in the lombardo translation taking it from line four like cranes beating their metallic wings in the stormy sky at winter's onset, unspeakable rain at their backs, their necks stretch toward oceanic streams and down to strafe the brown pygmy race, bringing strife and bloodshed from the sky at dawn, the Trojans advancing across the plain. So something to notice about the Trojans differing from the Achaeans, and this is something I mentioned back in the first lecture on the Iliad, is that the Trojans, like a flock of birds, are extremely loud, clashing, screaming into the sky to try to intimidate the Achaeans. The Achaeans, you'll soon find, are grim, fierce, and silent. Their dispositions, even as armies, are completely different. Just as the gods 
who help each side are completely different. And someone might notice <clears throat> that from God on high down to the behavioral level at the lowest possible level, the Achaeans will find themselves superior to the Trojans. And so what you are to keep your mind focused on <clears throat> is when you see a virtue of the Achaeans, do not question why it is that the Achaeans have the virtues, because of course they're the archetypal winners, but rather what it is that virtue has to teach you <clears throat> and what it is you could accomplish more by embodying that virtue. And so the first one will be the difference between that which is superficial and that which is substantial. I'll continue now with the description of the Achaeans. <clears throat> Banks of mist, or rather, excuse me, while the Greeks moved forward in silence, their breath curling in long, angry plumes that acknowledged their pledges to die for each other, the simile begins. Banks of mist settle on mountain peaks and seep into the valleys. Shepherds dislike it, but for a thief it is better than night. And a man can only see as far as he can throw a stone. So we see, confirmed, that the Achaeans, called Greeks by Lombardo to, to upset me, we notice that the Achaeans, in their silence, are compared to thieves. But thieves who are entering an environment that plays to their advantage. And why would the Achaeans be compared to thieves? Well, the Achaeans are plundering pirates as far as the Trojans are concerned. They are come to another land to take back something which is theirs, but also everything else. It's not just Helen that the Achaeans have come to claim at this point. They'll be taking everything. Though the question of whether the Achaeans would leave with less will be broached. But ultimately the outcome will be a negative one. And the Achaeans will utterly destroy the Trojans. And that will be a theme that we pick up again in the Aeneid uh, directly and a theme that we discuss obliquely uh, in a way, at least compared to the Aeneid in the Odyssey. Of course, the Odyssey will deal with the after-effects, the memories, the traumas of Troy, the, the effects on the men, their families, the world, after their actions have determined the course of history. Um, whereas the Aeneid will actually deal with the Trojans who have to survive and find a new home, and that will be none too easy a task for them either. So... Uh, if the Odyssey shows the hardest path possible in life, well, then the Aeneid shows uh, something even harder, which is, well, that's the sort of incredible thing humans have always had to do. And so as the Achaeans and the Trojans meet on the field of battle, Paris <laughs> shows up in a leopard skin, and something I always mention when lecturing about this is that a leopard skin would have been none too common a thing to wear and would have surely indicated his noble status. It indicates that he can hunt and that he has the leisure time to hunt and that he's a talented hunter. But it's a leopard, so not with a dagger, but with a bow. Not with a spear, but with a bow. So he's a bowman. You know this. 
and he's not wearing any armor. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you that he's arrogant, that he's foolish, that he's superficial, that he's stupid, that he's careless. Because everybody wears armor. And especially the people that actually fight. And so what do you immediately know about him? That he's only there for the get-go and that he won't finish. Because the real fighters are ready for a fight. And he's ready just to put on a show. And so he steps out in front of the Trojan ranks. And Menelaus catches a sight of him. And you might imagine that this is like Menelaus seeing a hot fudge Sunday in front of himself after 12 hours of starvation. Because what more could Menelaus want to see in the midst of a battle than the object of all his hate and all Achaean hate present itself right in front of him? It must have felt like a gift from Zeus in that moment to him. And in fact, I imagine, though it does not say here, that he must have prayed and been thankful for that opportunity. And just to add emphasis to that point, to the food metaphor and the consumatory reward system mentioned earlier, here's actually the simile that describes Menelaus stalking Paris. Lines 27 to 31 in the Lombardo, book three. As a lion must feel when he finds the carcass of a stag or wild goat and half-starving consumes it greedily, even though hounds and hunters are swarming down on him. And so, so I don't know if I got caught off there, but what I was saying was that Menelaus saw what was essentially the best thing he could possibly see, and we understand that because we use a metaphor of, or rather a simile of, a wild animal half-starved eating a carcass of prey it would love to eat, which is, according to our representational capacity, the best thing we can possibly imagine. We, and that's why we interpret that sort of thing. Paris then gets described as seeing Menelaus, and this is how he reacts. Paris's blood turned milky when he saw him coming on. Pale. And he faded back into the Trojan troops with cheeks as pale as if he had seen, had almost stepped on a poisonous snake in a mountain pass. Wow. I mean, just think about that. Just upon seeing Menelaus, Paris turns completely white, almost green, like somebody who almost steps on a snake, barely notices it, and jumps out of the way and thinks about what? How close to death they just were. Well, you might well say, well, that's understandable that he would be so scared of death. And I might well just say back to you, however, they're both soldiers in war. The expectation is that they're both prepared for death. The reality is that Paris certainly is not. And so his brother, Hector, sees him, and he speaks to him as scornfully as he possibly can. And you should understand that Hector has every right to do this. Hector is running the Trojan war efforts. He's the, he is the chieftain. He is correlate, essentially, to Agamemnon in his capacities, because his father, Priam, is emperor of Troy. He's too old, so he can't go out and be a marshal of the people. Hector has a wife. He has a son. 
And he is the firstborn of Priam, so he will have the kingdom as well. He has every responsibility. Paris has none. And Hector, well, Hector has never, ever dishonored Troy. And has been a perfect son, dutiful in every way, and we'll see that in Book 6 and in Book 24 in much sadder form. Paris, all he ever did was get banished from Troy due to a prophecy that suggested that he would destroy Troy someday, just to come back one day with Helen of Sparta, and then to be followed by a thousand Achaean ships that would destroy his people. They're the opposite sorts of guys. The sort that fix things, and the sort that break things. And so when Hector speaks to Paris, he has something to say. Paris, desperate, womanizing, pretty boy. Lombardo translation, everybody. I wish you had never been born or had died unmarried. Better that than this disgrace before the troops. Can't you just hear it? The long-haired Greeks chuckling and saying that our champion wins for good looks, but comes up short on offense and defense. Is this how you were when you got a, up a crew and sailed overseas, hobnobbed with the warrior caste in a foreign country, and sailed off with a beautiful woman with marriage ties to half of them? You're nothing but trouble for your father and your city, a joke to your enemies, an embarrassment to yourself. No, don't stand up to Menelaus. You might find out what kind of a man it is whose wife you're sleeping with. You think your lyre will help you, or Aphrodite's gifts, your hair, your pretty face, when you sprawl in the dust? It's the Trojans who are cowards, or do you have long since been dressed out in stones for all the harm you've done? Now I have to say, being the sort of person who becomes a teacher of great books and great literature, and having also a podcast... You might imagine that I'm the sort of person that's talked far too much during the entirety of his life and therefore been punished for it. Often with brutal verbal assaults that were completely deserved. Yes. And yet, nothing I have ever said or had said to me has ever come anywhere close to what Hector said to his own brother just now. <laughs> But you should hear Paris's response. Because apparently, even the dagger of truth has no effect on whatever armor it is that he has, which isn't real armor, of course. That's only just, Hector. You've got a mind like an axe, you know, always sharp. Making the skilled cut through a ship's beam, multiplying force, nothing ever turns your edge. But don't throw golden Aphrodite's gifts in my face. <laughs> we don't get to choose what the gods give us, you know. And we can't just toss their gifts aside. He's mentioning how beautiful he is and the fact that women love him, by the way, when he says that. So, alright, if you want me to fight, fine. Fine. 
have the Trojans and the Greeks sit down, and Menelaus and I will square off in the middle to fight for Helen and all her possessions. Winner take all. And everyone else will swear oaths of friendship. Uh, you all to live here in the fertile Troad, and they to go back to Bluegrass Argos and Achaea with its beautiful women. Hector liked what he heard. So lines about mm, 65 to 80. Okay, so what did we just hear? Well, hmm, Paris is completely unabashed by what has been said to him by Hector. He doesn't mind it at all, and in fact, he has the impudence to speak back to Hector, his brother, his superior in every way, and say, well, man, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. I'm so good looking, and you know, that's not me, that's Aphrodite, and so maybe this whole war is because of Aphrodite and not because of Paris is the implication there, and we can't actually address that. The mythology does suggest that Aphrodite has a major part to play in how the Trojan War starts. Um, there's a whole sub-story that I may tell at some point about the Apple of Eris and how that leads to the judgment of Paris, and Paris will choose between the beauty of three goddesses and all will cheat and offer him something. <laughs> they will all attempt, knowing his lowly human nature and his subject to desire, they will attempt to goad him with bribes and he will be offered political power by Hera. He will not accept it. Victory in battles and war by Athena. And that's, he doesn't care much for that. And uh, the most beautiful woman imaginable by Aphrodite. And fool that he is, he imagines it, it is she that he will be with, but no, no. It's Helen. She's beautiful enough. It will just happen to be the case that she's taken. And so for his selfish love, which reminds me very much of the crown and Queen Elizabeth's um, uncle, for his selfish love, his entire people would fall. In any case, though, he makes a suggestion, a brash suggestion, indicating his superficial understanding of the situation and the consequences of it. He looks for the quick fix, a quick fix that will fix nothing for him and everything for everybody else because he suggests that he fight Menelaus one-on-one. -on -one. Everybody will agree to this. Why? Well, the Trojans hate Paris just as much as the Achaeans do, if not more. They love Hector. He's good. He's noble. He represents everything good about them. They hate Paris. He's lowly. He's chosen uh, one woman from a foreign land over all his people. He's the worst. So they would love him to die. And then the Achaeans will go away, and they can be happy again, and he'll be gone, which means they'll actually possibly be even happier than before. The Achaeans want him dead for obvious reasons, then they win. Go home. And they're good. And actually, the terms of the agreement to this one-on-one -on -one combat will stipulate that Paris will only give back Helen the things she stole from Sparta, because they did steal things as well, and some additional recompense for their time at the war. But, you know, that's not so much. That's not that bad, honestly. It indicates, really, that there's not a lot of hate between the Trojans and the Chians specifically. In fact, you won't really even hear about 
that sort of emotion being applied to to battle well hate will stand on Odysseus's ship at one point and well there is a certain hate that the men seem to have to for each other while they fight but not a personal one in any way we won't see a personal hate really we won't see somebody take it personally until Achilles retakes the field against Hector and well he just takes it the situation completely out of context and you might understand Achilles to be the sort of person like Lucifer who manages to make every situation about himself and how everything that happens to everybody when it happens to him is the biggest deal ever and he doesn't know how to deal with it and why well he's called half divine you might also understand that to mean that he's a prima donna which would also be indicated by the fact that he's so close to his mother who's always there with him and you might also understand when you consider the fact that Athena loves Odysseus that she's often with him but that Thetis is often with Achilleus what is Thetis she's the overgiving mother she gives too much she spoils him he's the worst but Odysseus is pushed by Athena in fact at the end of the Odyssey which he will be at because he survives Troy unlike Achilleus even then in his hardest battle Athena will require him to prove himself before she joins and helps him out and that's what wisdom demands of somebody that they go into uncharted unmapped territory and once there boom wisdom activates if you're gonna have any chance it's with her and that's exactly the argument that Athena will make at the end of the Odyssey and so in a way we covered a lot of ground today and uh, another way we covered much less than I expected we find ourselves now with a one-on-one -on -one combat about to occur between Menelaus and Paris. And one last note before we do go, actually, is that do recall that Paris is the one who tells Menelaus, or excuse me, Paris is the one that tells Hector to stop the fighting. And so Hector's the one that has to go out into the middle of the field and risk his neck in order to stop the fighting. And you might imagine that a spear and a... And and a rock could still be thrown at him and there's a major risk in doing that that's very brave of him to do that and of course that's not something Paris would do and so next time I lecture we'll get through this battle between Paris and Menelaus and we'll see the Tachoscopia, the view from the wall so-called where pair where excuse me Helen and Priam take a look at all the Achaean warriors and notice those who are distinguishable or distinct from the others and then we'll see the devolving nature of Paris and Helen's relationship because well apparently being a coward doesn't make one 
a big hit anywhere. So we'll do our best to get through book three in episode 013. This has been episode 012. Remember, download Anchor. Make sure you like my station. Share it. Talk about it. Call in anytime. If you ever have any questions about anything I say or if I need to correct something. In fact, I think I heard something uh, earlier where I said a not when I shouldn't have said not. And so that's the nature of on-air broadcasts, I imagine. So, like, share, download Anchor. Ah, and next week I will be going live on to iTunes. And I may have a new image to go with that, too. Tune in.